Uh, my name is Josh Butler, one of the pastors here. I'm joined by fellow pastor Jim Mullins, and we also have a special guest with us today, AJ Swoboda, a friend and amazing author. And the area we wanted to explore today was that of Sabbath. Uh, so we've just been in the Ten Commandments, and uh, a lot of those commandments seem pretty clear on what they mean for us today. Do not murder, do not kill, do not commit adultery. Well, murder, kill, I'm doubling up. Do not <laughs> murder, do not commit adultery, uh, don't make idols. For those of us who follow Jesus, a lot of those seem pretty straightforward. Like, yeah, those are not good ways of loving your neighbor, of loving God. Um, and yet the Sabbath can be a little more confusing for people. What, what does it actually mean to practice the Sabbath? Am I supposed to? Is that helpful in the, in the New Testament after Jesus? Is that something that uh, God wants? from me? Um, what is the purpose behind Sabbath? Even what is that? Does that just mean I sit alone in a room and stare at the wall all day? Or, or, or is it only the absence of doing things? Or are there things that I should be doing? Uh, Sabbath brings up a lot of questions for us. And AJ, you are someone who has thought deeply and richly about Sabbath. You've written a book uh, called Subversive Sabbath, which is uh, Subversive Sabbath, The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop world. And I wonder, Jim, would you maybe, you, you recently read the book, and I know it kind of made an impact on you. Would you be willing to kind of just give us a quick synopsis of what struck you or what hit you about the book? But AJ, I know you don't like to boast about yourself, so maybe we can, we can boast on you. Yeah. Well, I've read about, I don't know, somewhere between five and 10 books on Sabbath. And I recognized kind of the the, the rich gifts of all of them were kind of coming together in this book. Um, so it's a, it's a real, really unique uh, book in that it talks about the importance of Sabbath in a technology-saturated world. Um, it gets into the ecological and economic aspects of Sabbath. Um, it even has a chapter on Sabbath for critters, uh, which I loved, and uh its its role in the worshiping community, and so it it, it to me is uh, really the most complete book on Sabbath that I've read, and I'm I'm not just saying that I'm sincerely definitely well, and you're not alone in saying that Christianity Christianity Today awarded it its 2019 book award uh, for the spiritual formation book of the year. Uh, and it's uh, or it's a spiritual formation award for the year, as well as its award of merit for the beautiful orthodoxy book of the year. Kind of there, that's high praise coming from a, a significant magazine. Well, AJ, we're so grateful to have you on. I'm wondering if you could uh, give us a short bio of yourself, your story, your family, your history, uh, wh which high school you went to. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank, thanks for first for having me, but uh, your really generous words about um, uh, about my work. Yeah, so I my my story is actually I went to high school with Josh. Uh, we we went to high school uh, McNary High School in Kaiser, Oregon. Um, can anything good come of Kaiser, Oregon? It's possible. Um, we were both uh, part of the same kind of neighborhood, same same area, the same city. In fact, and I was actually where I met Jesus. I was 16 years old in my math class in high school uh, when I overheard uh, the two girls behind me arguing about uh, when Jesus was coming back. They'd been reading this book called the Left Behind series, and I'd never I'd never heard the story of Jesus, nor had I uh, read the Bible or really been all that interested in the Christian faith. And just something about the argument between these two Mennonite girls about the return of Jesus intrigued me. Uh, and I went home and read my Bible. I, in fact, I read John's gospel. My dad had given me his Bible, his college Bible, and I became a Christian um, in a very kind of dramatic way, started going to church and started kind of facing the sin in my life and and and, and my 
reality. Um, so like, yeah, now, I mean, th- that was some 20 years ago. I, I have the privilege of getting to be a, a Bible and theology professor. I teach the Bible and theology at Northwest Christian University, where I teach undergraduate students uh, the Bible and theology. And I run a doctor ministry program at uh, Fuller Seminary on leadership and the Holy Spirit. Um, and I recently, the last 10 years, was privileged of getting to be in the same city with Josh. Uh, I got to pastor a plant and pastor church uh, in Portland, Oregon, called Theophilus, which is going to this day and uh, really continues to have an impact on the city of Portland. Uh, but the Sabbath is a big, a big part of my journey, um, and one that has taken a lot of, ironically, a lot of work to wrap my arm, my my life around. Sabbath is not easy. It's very challenging. It's very painful. Uh, it completely crucifies and disrupts your sense of narcissism, your sense of self-centeredness, and is ultimately. Uh, an invitation that God is, uh, I think, bringing to the world today. Uh, it, of the Ten Commandments, Josh, that you mentioned, of the Ten, uh, the Sabbath commandment is the only one that begins with the word remember. And it's like God knew what he was talking about, that of the Ten, this would be the one that we would be most likely to forget. Hmm. Hmm. So I want to actually come right out of the gates and ask a big, imaginative, hypothetical sort of question before kind of narrowing down in the into the particulars. Um, but I want you to imagine if everyone in the world practiced Sabbath for a full year. Imagine that. And then I'm going to name different areas of life. And you, if you could, could you kind of try to imagine what life would be like at the end of that year in those areas? So the first one I want to mention would be like physical and mental health. How would that be different after this universal year of Sabbath? Now, just to be clear, a year or a day, an actual Sabbath, do you mean a yearly sabbatical or a whole, or a day? No, yeah. If they were to have a day of Sabbath for an entire year. Like one week? So no. Practically. Yeah, one day a week for an entire year. One day a week for an entire year. Yeah, 52 total days. One, oh, I see. Forgive me. Yeah. Yeah. For one year. Wow. 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 Well, um, and yeah, the first one, mental health. Just to point out, by the way, the Jews, uh, just, just as, a, as a point of reference for this, the Jews actually believed and believe, if you read Abram, Abram Heschel's book on this, uh, that, that if the entire world Sabbathed on the same day, Messiah would come back. And the, the Christian perspective is actually a bit different, and that is uh, Messiah has come, and that's why the whole world should get to rest. So the, the truth is, Jesus should change the, the way that our, our, our world structures work. On, on the mental health um, and mind well-being level, that's a, what a phenomenal question. Uh, suicide rates among teenagers right now are skyrocketing, and uh, it is directly tied to social media and addictions to, screen, to screens. Uh, I, I would say, first of all, suicide rates among teenagers would, would plummet. Uh, I would, I would suggest that we would be so less connected to instantaneous response and we would, we would be a little bit more comfortable not living under the tyranny of clickbait. And by that, we would no longer feel the necessity to obsessively have to live into the, the, the tyranny of the now. We wouldn't have to always be up to date. We, I guess I'm saying people who live the Sabbath would be much more comfortable getting, being a little bit more behind. Mm. So, so what about family life? Uh, how would families be different at the end of that year? Mm. That's a, I can't speak for everybody else's family, but I can say for mine, 
part of my story is that I, for a good chunk of time, uh, put my my family on the altar uh, for the purpose of ministry. Uh, I say uh, that I don't believe in child sacrifice, but my my schedule would reveal a very different reality. Uh, I I think probably my PK boy would have a much deeper love and appreciation for the church. Uh, there's a generation of PKs in this world that hate the church because the Sabbath has been forgotten. I, and I would guess that our families uh, would be much more at peace, not doing anything together, and simultaneously would be much more honest about boundaries um, because we would know how to say no. Yeah. What about the environment? How would that be different at the end of the year? Yeah. Um, uh, climate change uh, let's just get into this. Uh, cl- climate change is an argument for the existence of God. Uh, when you, it's it's critical that we believe in climate change because it proves God's existence. To say uh, that we are destroying the planet, to say that we are messing the planet up, is to simultaneously say that there is a way the world is supposed to exist. So to say that there's something wrong is to say that there's something there's supposed to be, and we are destroying our planet. And every person I know who serves in the environmental world agrees that we're destroying the planet, which implies there's a way it's supposed to be done. And the way God dreamt this world was that every critter, every piece of land, every refugee, every child, every parent, every tree, uh, everything would get a chance to rest. Um, there's a, all, all this fascinating stuff. For example, they're finding that whales uh, are not sleeping anymore. And it's largely due to this, the noise of how much traffic is on our ocean ways. Uh, the, the, we are not giving creation a chance to rest. And man, when you don't give creation a chance to rest, it starts to die. Yeah. Just, just to fill in the gaps, I think this is really important. How would Sabbath provide that space for creation to get a little rest? I think of my chickens. We, we had three chickens when we lived in Portland, and one day a week, we would not disturb them. We would just let them be. And one of my favorite things to do every week was right before the Sabbath, I would go and pick extra vegetables from our garden to give to our chickens. They knew what it was like for me to get extra. They were waiting for me every Friday night. You could hear their excitement knowing that they were going to get extra vegetables and a day off from us. I think creation was intended to breathe and stop just the way human beings were. And I suspect that if we took a day a week and stopped driving and stopped going and stopped doing everything just to be, um, we would find that the implications of that would affect not only our, our economic realities, but I'm just dancing around. I think there's a mystery involved. I think creation was created to need rest. Um, and when we remove that, you know, it's funny, the seven days of creation, uh, if you were to remove any of the days, first the first six days, if you removed light from the creation story, how well would life be? It wouldn't work. If you removed water, if you removed the land, if you removed the green things, nothing would work. If you removed any part of the creation, it would start falling apart. But we think it's okay to remove Sabbath from the creation story and we'll be fine. And it's not the way it works. You remove one part and the whole thing starts to fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. And and then the last angle on that is what about economics? Like how would our economic life be different after that year? Mm-hmm. Well, we would all make less money or at least those in power would make less money. Uh, and it would give the chance, it would give the poor a chance to rest, which is ultimately my big, my biggest criticism about Sabbath is the argument that this is just for privileged people in power. And at the end of the day, 
the, the, the poor are not getting an opportunity to rest because the rich are not resting. And because the rich never rest, they never extend it to people who are not in power. I think of this young man uh, who I'm coaching who lives in New York City. He's a youth pastor at a church. He's dying. He's, he's 28 years old. Uh, he's a pastor who is deadly overweight. I mean, he's, he's, he's killing himself, working 80 hours a week. And he went, I'm coaching him on how to talk to his pastor about getting a day of rest every week. And he goes to his pastor and he says, can I have one day of rest a week? And his, pa- his senior pastor says to him, literally, when I was a youth pastor, I didn't need a day of rest. We fail to recognize the relationship between power and Sabbath. And when the people in power and those with privilege and those with the money don't do it, it really affects the people that don't have it. And I would say it would be one of the greatest dreams in God's, imagine it would be God's dream that there would actually be a day where refugees and the poor uh, and those not in power would not have to try to keep up with the rest of us. Yeah. So I think that's a rich vision. And I think some people might say, well, is that making a jump? But actually scripture directly connects uh, the poor, um, the the overlooked um, to receiving the benefits and the gifts of uh, Sabbath. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because yeah, I think that can I, be looked. If I could jump in, you know, because we're kind of in the series on Exodus, and so we're seeing the Ten Commandments there. But yeah, I, can you talk about? It seems like the Sabbath is one of the one command that, that's connected both to creation, which you mentioned, kind of the structure of the seven days of creation, but it's also structured to the Exodus experience and treatment of the poor and enslaved. Yeah, yeah. When you read when you read the fourth commandment, um, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Let it be for your manservants, your maidservants, your children, creation, uh, your livestock, the refugee. I mean, this commandment, the fourth commandment, the universal scope of this commandment is shocking. It is for everyone. It is not just for the Hebrews. Uh, this is one of the brilliance of the the Hebrew Bible. That this is one of the brilliance of Yahweh of God. Is there is no religion in the ancient world that was as universal in its scope as the Hebrew Bible, meaning that God's blessings were intended to be blessings to the whole world. Genesis 12, be a blessing. You're blessed to be a blessing. That's the Sabbath commandment. This is why every nation in the world loved going to war with the Jews. They loved going to war with the Jews because the Jews were the only people group in the ancient world that refused when they were in war to fight one day a week. They believed the Sabbath was so universal that even our enemies should have a day of rest. It is for everyone. When you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, the idea is that Sabbath is made uh, for, for, for every human, the man, woman, creation. It's for God. It's, for, uh, it's, for, it's universal in scope. It's, it's the intentions are to be a blessing to the whole wide world. And man, when you've ever spent time with somebody who's at peace, uh, you walk away at peace. But when you spend time with somebody who's uh, compulsive, impulsive, uh, not at peace, you walk away not at peace. That's what we're called to be, is we're called to be at peace in Christ, to bear that Christ, that, that, that peace of Christ to the, to the whole wide world. It is universal in scope. God has intended this practice to be a blessing to the whole uh, wide world. Interesting note, by the way, on Exodus, in Exodus 5, when uh, Pharaoh said, uh, Moses goes to confront Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, 
about the Egyptian, he says about the Israelites that they're lazy servants. I've always found it interesting that you have here the slave owner telling the slaves that they're lazy. Uh, my my counselor would call that projection. You know, you're, you're projecting onto the people your own baloney, your own problems. Uh, in uh, in any language, there's this thing called a lexical gap, and a lexical gap is a word that a, a particular language doesn't a language doesn't have a word for something. So, for example, in English, uh, if you lose a spouse, we call that a widow. Uh, if you lose a parent, we call that an orphan. But in English, uh, there's no word for a parent who loses a child. It's a lexical gap. Uh, when you go back and read the ancient, when you read the Old Testament scholars on the book of Exodus, um, the Egyptians had a lexical gap. There is zero evidence, zero evidence that the Egyptians ever, ever, ever had a word for freedom. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, just the idea that God's literally introducing something into a world that they had no category for. Yeah, that's incredible. And can you tell us about why that's such why that context is so significant for framing the meaning of the command to to Sabbath? Because it's not coming to like it's not spoken to executives that says, "Hey, you need to take a day off." I mean, it universally applies to that, but it's being spoken to people who've just been delivered from the tyranny of Pharaoh, and how does that shape the meaning of it? Yeah, which is why uh, when when Israel finally does get into the desert, you have this story of a guy who picks up sticks uh, and carries them on the Sabbath, and and God killed the guy gets killed. Um, God almost seems crazy harsh about the Sabbath, but I think God is really brilliant and knows that in that moment in time, their entire identity had been so wrapped up in being uh, enslaved that He needed to get across to them that their their old way of Egyptian life is completely done. They, they, God, God had in that culture, in that time needed to communicate so clearly uh, that the, the old economy, the old way, the old kingdom was finished and the new kingdom is here. It's interesting, by the way, when Moses goes up on the mountain and receives the 10 commandments in Exodus and brings it back down, um, it is telling that he comes back down and all of Israel is worshiping a golden calf, which is why, by the way, most pastors never take a sabbatical. We're, we're, we're terrified of what's going to happen if we come back down the mountain and everybody's worshiping a golden calf. My real fear is if I go up the mountain and come back down and everybody's still worshiping God and I realize I'm not as important as I thought I was. The powerful thing, though, is that Israel is now worshiping the gods of Egypt in their freedom. And the point is, as N.T. Wright says, it is not hard for God to get Israel out of Egypt. What is hard is God getting Egypt out of Israel. We constantly want to go back to the old way, but God is inviting us into a brand new rhythm that doesn't even have a category in the world that we live in. Yeah, I love that. That old, yeah, it took God one day to get Israel out of Egypt and 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel thing, but how Sabbath is one of those practices for getting Egypt out of Israel or getting the ways of an idolatrous go, go, go empire, whatever out of the people of God. Mm-hmm. Well, so we've talked about it. I kind of like imagine what the world could be like. You know, this is 50,000 foot level. We've talked about it biblically seeing it in the story of the Exodus and the creation account and all that. I'm curious, just very personally for you, why, why did you write a book on Sabbath? What were uh, some of the, I'm curious, even how your own family practices it kind of in your own personal life, some of the things that led you, uh, I found when someone writes a book about something, it's usually because they, it, it's really impacted them uh, personally. It's something they've thought about, a lot about, reflected on. Uh, and I'm just curious what your own personal experience has been like uh, with Sabbath for yourself and your family. 
Yeah, the, the the actual story for kind of the the birth, the the conception of this this particular book. There, there's kind of two points to it. One was a a bit of a burnout crisis that I had when I was a college pastor in Eugene when I uh, served uh, at a church. I was just working eighty hours a week. I I I went through a bit of a burnout experience, and by God's grace, was reading uh, a book by Eugene Peterson and read about how this, you know, this pastor had one, one day a week, he'd go up in the mountains with his wife and read a Psalm and do nothing remarkable. And he had nothing important to say on that day, nothing to do just to be with God. And I thought, honestly, at that time, this was 15 years ago. I thought, uh, this is me. And this is just weird stuff that I thought the old Testament people did. And then began to find that actually this, this is a practice that he'd been doing for, uh, for years to sustain his life. And that he did it in faithfulness to Christ. That the real story was uh, when we had planted the church in Portland about five years in, uh, the church started getting really tired because church planning is really hard work. And we, uh, I decided to, because the church was so tired to do a sermon series on, on Sabbath, which is what, you know, preachers do when there's a problem in the church, we do a sermon series. So I uh, did a sermon series on rest, biblical rest. And I preached for three weeks on the Sabbath and I've preached on all sorts of things that have made people mad. I've preached on, you know, sexuality. I've preached on politics. I preached a whole thing on on marijuana once. Um, so I, I preached things that have made people mad. I preached for three weeks on the Sabbath, and I don't think we've ever had more people leave the church. Um, what I found was the Sabbath was completely offensive uh, to the American sensibilities of the people I was leading. Uh, it stepped on every every everything we value: affluence, power, authority. Uh, coercion. It stepped on all of that stuff. And so the elders wanted to meet after that sermon series. And I remember we were sitting around as an eldership team and talking about uh, the Ten Commandments. And it dawned on me, you take these 10, this was the the darkest epiphany I've ever had in pastoral ministry. Uh, it dawned on me that if you take these Ten Commandments, if I break, as a pastor, if I broke nine of them, I'd lose my job, right? If I, if I started preaching another gospel, I'd lose my job. Uh, if I started stealing money from the church, I'd lose my job. If I had an adulterous relationship, I'd lose my job. If I murdered somebody, I'd definitely lose my job. And it dawned on me for the very first time that if I did nine of these, broke nine of these commandments, I'd lose my job. Uh, but if I don't take a day of rest, uh, I'll get a raise. And it was the very first time in my life that I recognized that the church literally celebrates. This is the one commandment the church celebrates people breaking. We incentivize it. And I think that was the story that really, really convinced me that this book, I needed to write a book on this because of my experience, both in burnout, but also just the important, the church, we need to begin to grapple with the price tag of a church that does not know how to rest. It's killing people. So the book and all of the chapters in it have been a gift. They've been very formative around here. But if you hypothetically Let's just say that we lived in a world where only one chapter books were allowed and uh, every author had to just choose one chapter that gets published and the rest of it had to be lost forever. What would be the one chapter you preserve? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, well, I, I will say it's um, not that I don't, the rest of the book, I certainly believe in, but the chapter that I thought that was a unique contribution that I made, uh, which was the result of the fact that my PhD is in environmental theology. I mean, I studied how the Bible speaks about creation care and whatnot. Um, the chapter on Sabbath and in the land and Sabbath and the critters uh, was, is a chapter that I really felt uh, like a burden to write. Uh, that, that, that this this idea of rest 
has cosmological implications for the environment. Like it actually affects the real world. And um, I think that was a unique part of this book because generally speaking, um, the evangelical culture that I've been a part of um, caring for the earth is sort of a subsidiary, tertiary, not important conversation. Uh, But uh, the Bible just does not make this a subsidiary, tertiary conversation. The Sabbath is for the land and creation. Uh, And and I thought that, I, I don't know, I thought that was a unique contribution. It is ironically the part of the book that I've gotten most negative feedback for too. Oh, I, you know what? If I were to answer the question of which one I would preserve of your book, it would be the, the same. Because especially the most people who care deeply about environmental issues, which you should if you're a biblically literate follower of Christ, um, often will go to the proactive things that need to be done, uh, the actions that need to be done. But really the Sabbath would be the the inaction, the ceasing from action that you can just imagine having a ripple effect, you know, cutting uh, emissions by one seventh. I mean, that'd be huge. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You said cutting emissions. And I would also say cutting missions. The point being we need in the church, we need less activity that's more intentional and, and way, way more sent like uh, way less activity and way more calling. Cut, cut, you said cutting emissions, but I heard cutting missions. <laughs> and and, and minim, I'm saying really lit, like intentionally uh, learning how to prune that which is not bearing fruit in our churches. Mm. Yeah. Well, could you speak uh, also, AJ, what are some of the life-giving Sabbath practices that you've seen other people integrate into their lives? So, for example, you said, I mean, so much of it is a, a seizing. It's a, it's a not doing. And yeah, I think for a lot of people, you know, I, I imagine in the old Testament and in, in Jewish culture and all like there's, there's a common cultural rhythm and, and, and everyone's kind of on the same page practicing it together. And you see what other families are doing and there's some things that are probably inherited from your family and your culture. But I think for so many of us today, it's like, we don't maybe even know how to practice it. You know, like, like are we just sitting alone staring at the wall in our room for, you know, a whole day or, uh, or I think when some people think of rest, they think of, binging out on Netflix or something, you know, like, like it's, it's a uh, more of just passively consuming and receiving. Um, and I'm curious if you could speak to, yeah, just what might, what are some lenses you found helpful for what practicing Sabbath well might look like? Can you kind of spark our imagination? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm struck immediately struck that when, when most of, Americans, at least when most Americans ask me questions about the Sabbath, they'll say something like, well, what am I supposed to do on the Sabbath? Which is a a fundamentally American question. We don't even have a construct for rest without doing stuff. That's not even something that we, we can, we can even imagine. But you know, the the Bible, the, the predominant message of scripture is not what we do on the Sabbath. It's actually what we don't do. And what we don't do, the, the scriptures are, are, are just incessantly clear that the invitation is to not work. Well, well, what is work? Um, work is different for each individual. And I can't put on somebody else what scripture doesn't say. I'm not going to go beyond what is written. Uh, each person has the Holy Spirit, a follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit inside of them to help them discern what work is and what work is not. And so discerning that stuff, what you do and what you don't do, I think we should be really faithful to, to be trusting of the voice of the Spirit to speak to us and show us what is 
what is work and what is not work. I found that that there's a big difference in my life between uh, Sabbath gardening and work gardening. Uh, when I'm when I'm Sabbath gardening, I'm not trying to fix or finish something. I'm just out there and I'm I'm with God and I'm enjoying it. But work gardening is like I got to get stuff planted before the before the fall, you know. So a couple practices. I, I think one thing that's been very life giving to me, and I certainly know others have resonated with this. But a day, uh, a day, a week, one day, one day a week that we are intentional to uh, either turn our phones off or uh, have a minimal relationship to our phone. Uh, having one day a week where we step away from the normal rhythms of uh, compulsivity and impulsivity that our phones feed. You know, it's the first time in human history uh, that we now have uh, the capacity to put work in our pocket wherever we go. Uh, Juliet Shore is a, the top, I mean, she's the the sociologist who's written on rhythms of rest and work. And she wrote The Overworked American. She says that uh, in the last 25 years, 25 years ago, the average American family worked a thousand hours less per year than they do now. And that is a direct result of the fact that our phones are in our pockets all the time. We work constantly now. So one day a week where our phones are either not on us or not with us or off in my case. I think a second thing is if you're single, um, don't, in your mind, don't think that this means just one day that you have to be all alone. Um, I found that a lot of singles resent the Sabbath because they feel as though uh, this is just another day to be alone. And what one of the myths of the Sabbath is that the Sabbath requires boredom to be done well. I, th- I think being with community and getting with people that you love and eating a good meal and sharing a dinner and a meal, a sh- like doing something fun is so important. Recreation, recreation, recreate. That, that's God's intention. I mean, you if you go to, by the way, if you go to Jerusalem on the Sabbath, uh, we were just there a few months ago, the whole city shuts down and parties on the Sabbath. I mean, it, it's just unreal to watch a city partying because it is the Sabbath. It's so powerful. So good community, just good community. And I'd say thirdly, develop really nerdy uh, liturgies, really nerdy rhythms that work for you that remind you that you've entered the rest. And for us, we make pancakes every Sabbath morning uh, as a reminder. And by the way, the Jews would have this practice that on the morning of the Sabbath, the father was to get up before any kid in the home and to get every kid a spoon of honey so that the children would never forget the sweetness of God's rest. And I I love, we don't do maple, we don't do honey, we do maple syrup. And the goal is that nerdy rhythm of pancakes, it just ushers in the mindset that this is a different day. It's a different day. So creating just nerdy liturgies that work for you and your and your, your yourself and your family uh, that that remind you and put your mind at ease knowing that this is a different day than the rest of the days. Yeah, yeah. we as a family, my family, we have some of those nerdy liturgies. Um, we start the day off with this little song that we sing about the Sabbath is about praying and playing and resting and giving. And um, we, you know, there's a lot of little things we do. One of the the fun things that we have is this big feast at the end of the day where folks from the neighborhood can come and enjoy and give thanks. Um, And then my daughter on the Sabbath is allowed to pluck anything she wants off of the shelf or anything in the house and go give it to any neighbor uh, that you would like uh, as kind of an extension of this joyful day uh, to our neighbors, to others. And uh, sometimes she plucks some pretty weird things, uh, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but what's been really rich is 
you know, she's on the autism spectrum and a lot of times communicating things um, in just sort of a, a, by creating a rational argument and things like that, that just, it doesn't connect with her as much. But what has really connected with her of understanding Jesus is that what we experience on the Sabbath day is like the, those are the things that Jesus is about. And that when Jesus, you know, returns and makes all things new, that every day is going to be like that Sabbath day. And those concrete tastes mm. and gifts and those sorts of things are really what's shaping that that vision in her. Um, can I can I can I just add one more? And, and this is all anecdotal. Uh, this this is um, there's no research to back this up. It is purely anecdotal. Uh, but I will say the sex is really good on the Sabbath. <laughs> and I, 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 of course, I believe in sex in marriage and marriage alone. So I, I want to advocate for that and for your listeners. But there is something crazy powerful about having one day a week where you give your full attention to the, 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 the spouse that you, you have committed your life to serve. I don't know what is different about it. I actually love the Jews actually believed that you were obligated to make love on the Sabbath. And these are the reasons I'm a Christian right now. You know, these are the reasons I've entered into covenant relationship with God. But you know, everybody's going to learn a lot of stuff about the Sabbath as you go and don't expect it to go perfectly. Like it takes time and effort. It's ironic how hard work Sabbath is. It's it's hard work to, to enter in and be intentional and everybody's going to learn differently. So I think you can definitely win people over through the good sex of the Sabbath. Um, <laughs> Sexy Sabbath. That should be your next book, part two. But all right, let me, let me throw something out for you. Why not? Um, so I did a little math and I realized that 40, that, that in our lives, we will spend 4,700, the average person will have 4,700 Sabbaths, you know, 4,700 weeks. Uh, so if someone were to take a full day off, uh, 4,700 times throughout their life. Imagine if someone realized that and they said, couldn't that time be spent serving the poor, creating wealth, uh, researching cancer, leading Bible studies, like all the good things we're supposed to do. Have we stewarded our time well if we've taken 4,700 days off over the course of our life? What would you say to that? Um, I would say... Uh, to whoever would say that, I would say that the the line of the book of Exodus will come to you very soon, and and the line that God uses in in the in the book for, sorry the book of Amos is that God says I will have my Sabbath, and his his point there is you have not been resting, but God will get his rest, and your sabbatical is coming. It may be in the form of a heart attack or a burnout or an adulterous relationship, but your rest is coming, and in the words of Saint Augustine, uh, which I, I'm I'm I rarely quote Augustine uh, these days, just whatever. That's not what we're talking about. But um, uh, Augustine had one concept that really speaks to me. He has a lot, but one of them that really speaks to me is he speaks about truth as uh, gravity and that human beings are, that truth and obedience are acts of living into God's gravity, right? And he says, he says, everybody can, everybody can kind of resist the realities that are, are true, but eventually will come back down to earth. And God, my, I guess my point would be in a pragmatic culture where we're always trying to produce more and more and more and more, that is precisely what Jesus meant when he said, you can gain the world and lose your soul. And 
God did not create a world where he desired us to give up our souls in the transaction of getting everything we want. Your wealth will not be there to comfort you in your death. Um, every single person in the world that their death, there's a, TED, there's a TED talk on this. Everyone's going to die. Uh, it's been proven. Science has, has figured this one out. Everyone will die. And everyone in their death is crazy. They're going to give all their stuff away. Everyone is generous eventually. And in our death, we're going to give everything we've earned on this world away. And all that will be left will be our souls before the living God. And what a tragedy to have given up the one day that God invited us in to renew our souls and our spirits for the purposes of finding things that will simply rot in the end. That's the greatest tragedy in the world. Mm. Well, AJ, as we're kind of coming close to the end of our time here and uh, wanting to to land the plane, this has been so rich. Uh, I I feel like we've looked at what does Sabbath mean for our world? We've looked at what is Sabbath in the Bible, the significance of it there. I think we've looked at how does it show up in our own personal lives? Um, maybe a final question to land on. I'd be curious your thoughts uh, as we close on what role does Sabbath play in the church's public witness? I'm just thinking about how in Exodus, the Sabbath command is not given to a bunch of scattered individuals, but given to a people. And there's a sense that it should mark their life as a culture. It should create a certain type of culture um, that is actually a part of there being a kingdom of priests that mediates the presence of God to the world. And so for the church today, the people of God today, how do you see Sabbath creating a unique kind of culture in our life as a church that actually speaks to our public witness uh, in the world? I'll, I'll close with this. I, I, and I just happened to have pulled this up on my computer because I, I was reading it uh, this morning. I'll, I'll, I'm going to, I want to read this to you. Uh, when there's a, a writer, that's uh, one of my favorite writers, his name is Andrew Sullivan. He writes a great deal for the New York post. Uh, and he's a kind of very, very famous kind of secular gay New Yorker who writes a lot of really interesting uh, cultural critiques. And he's he's not been super favorable towards the church or faith or Christianity over the years. Uh, he's famous because he's the guy who really invented blogging. And a number of years ago, uh, Andrew Sullivan blogged something like 13 blog posts a day. I mean, it was just insane. And a number of years ago, he burned out. He just completely burned out. And a few years ago, he came back and he quit the internet for like two years. And now he's back. And now that he's back after two years hiatus from the internet, he's all of a sudden writing about God. And he recently, a few years ago, he wrote an article called My Distraction Sickness. And in it, he talks about the power of stepping away from the internet and what happened to him. And this is the very last paragraph of his article. And in my opinion, this is uh, Andrew Sullivan throwing the church a softball. And the softball is giving us an open-eyed an invitation to understand the power of rest in our world and what it will do. This is the last paragraph of his article, My Distraction Sickness. If the churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. Christian leaders seem to think that they need more distraction to counter all the distraction. Their services have degenerated into emotional spasms, their spaces drowned with light and noise and locked shut throughout the day when their darkness and silence might actually draw those whose minds and souls have grown web weary. And his point is this, what he's, what he's saying, he's throwing us a softball. He's saying if the church can actually learn how to do silence and rest and quiet, they're going to reach the world because that, it, there's, that's nowhere in our world right now. And I suspect that if the church Ironically, the next great awakening, I think the next great awakening will will be not when we're awake, but when we're resting. I think that the church, the church that learns how to rest 
and be at peace with God is going to draw a whole new generation of people who are burning out on their phones. Wow. Wow. That is, uh, that is rich. And those are the words that we need to end with now. Um, I hope that those who are listening, take that vision to heart. And, um, I do hope that we uh, engage this book, but even more than that, disengage from the, the rhythm of work to receive God's gift of rest and that it shapes us into a people who display the utter generosity of God. So thank you so much for helping us in that, AJ. We really appreciate you and your voice and the time you've given to this podcast. Amen. Yes. Thank you, AJ. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Tempe podcast. Where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Redemption is one church in nine local congregations across the state of Arizona. Our vision at Redemption Tempe is to create disciples of Jesus who seek the reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. We would love for you to join us at one of our Sunday services at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. each week. You can learn more about us and how to get plugged into the life of our church by downloading our phone app called Redemption Church Tempe or on our website at tempe.redemptionaz.com. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please send any questions or feedback you might have about this podcast or our church by emailing tempe at redemptionaz.com. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week.